Hi, and welcome to the Care podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Levinson, a psychiatrist at McMaster University. And along with geriatrician Dr. Richard Stramko and other healthcare experts, we're looking to help those affected by a dementia diagnosis. This includes patients and caregivers, as well as family and friends. We understand that a diagnosis of dementia can sometimes feel scary and confusing. This podcast, along with the rest of the Care initiative, was created in order to help relieve some of the stress that comes with a diagnosis. This series will cover a broad range of topics relating to dementia and will look to provide answers to many of your questions. Before we get into the discussion, I want to note that this episode was initially recorded on October 24, 2018, and explores both apathy and depression in people with dementia and how caregivers can help to deal with these conditions. Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to our iGerryCare.ca second live event uh, coming to you from McMaster University. I'm here. Uh, with Dr. Richard Stramko, geriatrician and co-founder of iGeriCare, and I'm Dr. Anthony Levinson, a psychiatrist here at McMaster University and Hamilton Health Sciences. So a few things, uh, housekeeping issues about today's live event. One, during some of our tests, we did have the occasional technical difficulty. If the live stream of the event for whatever reason goes down, uh, just be reassured that we will keep talking and recording our responses to questions and that recording will be made available through iGerryCare.ca slash events through our Facebook channel and through YouTube. So just like in real life, when people stop listening to me, I will keep talking, <laughs> uh, only this time it'll be recorded. Uh, things about uh, Live Event 1, where we uh, covered off some uh, important issues for uh, how to be an effective caregiver. The recording of that live event is available through those same channels that I just mentioned. And we also had an opportunity to go back and answer some of the other uh, viewer questions that came in, and a recording of that Q&A is also available. Uh, Today, we will be talking about um, what I would say is maybe an under-recognized, uh, under-appreciated symptom of dementia, which is apathy, and uh, we'll also be talking about depression in dementia. So please send us in your questions. If you're watching on Facebook, you can use the Facebook commenting tool to send through your live questions, and we've also been fortunate to receive uh, questions uh, during the break between our first live event, uh, so we'll try to answer some of those as well. Uh, today we are, uh, based on your feedback and uh, people who responded to the survey, we have increased the length of today's live event to 45 minutes, and if we have uh, unanswered questions at the end of that time, uh, we'll try to do the same thing and record uh, a few more Q&A questions that come through. So um, today, let me ask you, Dr. Stramko, can you talk a little bit about uh, what it means when we say that someone with dementia has apathy and maybe say a bit about the impact of that uh, on the patient and, and especially on the caregiver? Sure. First of all, apathy is a very common symptom uh, that occurs in people that have dementia. 
it can occur in up to 50% of people that have dementia. So it's very common. And it's displaying a lack of goal-directed behavior or volitional behavior where people want to get up and actually engage with, in the, uh, with the world around them. They may show a little bit less emotion or concern or interest in the people around them and the world around them. And people can be uh, appear very withdrawn. So um, before they had any kind of cognitive impairment, they may be getting up, going around the house, doing their laundry, going out and playing sporting events, being involved in hobbies, being involved in social events, and after they get cognitive impairment and experience dementia, they show lack of interest in those activities. They may become more withdrawn and sit around the house for large periods of time. Occasionally people may be able to watch TV for six or seven hours a day, and this wasn't mm -hmm. common for them before uh, the onset of the dementia occurred. So people can see quite a significant change in their loved ones, and when that behavior changes, it's quite concerning to them. People may experience a lot of guilt related to the fact that their loved one is sitting around the house, and caregivers may experience a lot of anxiety around the apathy because they don't feel as though they're doing a good enough job. Right? The caregiver wants to get their loved one up, get them moving around, um, get them out and socializing, and often they'll ask us as a clinician, you know, what can I do to get them out and about? What can I do to get them back interested in these activities that they used to, to be in? So um, it's a very concerning symptom and it's a very common symptom. So uh, I guess just a, a, a bit of a recap, what the caregiver or the family might see is that the, the loved one with dementia does not seem to be doing as many activities. They may notice that they're sitting around a lot more and display a, a lack of interest in things that they used to be interested in. And I think what, what we often see is uh, high levels of frustration from mm -hmm. the caregiver. Um, one that they are trying and trying to get somebody to do things or maybe some of the activities that they used to do together mm -hmm. uh, as a couple or as a family if it's a younger caregiver and then and then a sense of guilt. Mm -hmm. why, why am I not, I'm not doing a good enough job of uh, kind of getting the person active. So, um, you know, can you say a little bit because I think sometimes when people uh, see their their you know family member not doing things, not taking an interest. They they may think that the person has depression. And can you maybe describe a little bit some of the differences that you see uh, between apathy and depression? Certainly. Um, so depression usually has other things associated with it. So it's not just a lack of interest. There's often sad feelings or feelings uh, of being down and we all experience sadness in our lives especially in response to certain events of so the death of a loved one a, a set of stressful circumstances that come into our lives but if you're feeling persistently sad or down uh, most days for most of the day for a two-week period that's considered to be depression with a few other associated symptoms so lack of engagement in pleasurable activities or activities that you previously found pleasurable um, is another symptom. And then other things, people can be sleeping too much or too little compared to what they were before they were depressed. They may complain of difficulties concentrating during their day-to-day -day activities. People when they're observing people that have depression, so caregivers, may say 
that they appear more agitated or that their movements are slowing down or their thoughts are slowing down. It's called psychomotor agitation or retardation. Um, and then there could be an increase in sense of guilty feelings. Occasionally people may also um, be concerned of having uh, increased thoughts of death or ruminating on death and even uh, express interest in uh, killing themselves, so suicidal thoughts. These symptoms are the standard symptoms for depression, and I hope I'm doing a good enough job <laughs> with these symptoms, talking yeah. to a psychiatrist who's an expert, so feel free to jump in. Um, but the symptoms can change just with age. So people that are older that get depression may have some symptoms or may experience depression slightly different. They may complain of increasing pain, mm. so nonspecific abdominal stomach pains or, or knee pains. Um, they may just talk passively about death, about how it might be better if they weren't around at all. And you might observe these people as well start trying to get rid of their possessions. And occasionally, um, people with depression, when they're older, may hear voices that aren't there or see people or animals that aren't there. And so mm. those are hallucinations or um, even delusions sometimes. So there can be those components of it. So I, I think you know, sometimes it, it can be challenging to tease apart yeah. apathy from depression, but I think you've, you've hit the nail on the head that it, you know, what we see for the most part with apathy is just the flatness. And yeah. in fact, the person is not necessarily sad or ruminating about death. They are just not, uh, they just don't feel like spontaneously doing activities or going out. They're actually sometimes relatively content to just Absolutely. sit in front of the TV for hours uh, or even just sit sometimes and stare into space. Uh, whereas typically the person with depression is articulating some of these other thoughts, They're the sadness or thoughts about death mm -hmm. and dying. So, so what do we know about the cause or causes of apathy or depression? Sure. Um, apathy is really uh, related to the frontal lobes in terms of brain function. So as you can see here, this is the front part of the brain called the frontal lobe. This is the temporal lobe. The back part of the brain is called the occipital lobe. And this other area here is called the parietal lobe. I don't want to get too technical, but on the inside of this part of the brain is something called the cingulate cortex or the anterior cingulate cortex. And so when that area is damaged, uh, it can be damaged from something like a stroke or from toxic proteins uh, such as we find in dementia. If, if that part of the brain is damaged, um, you can see that uh, we observe people become apathetic. So for instance, people that have frontotemporal dementia really have early onset and severe apathy that's noticeable right from the onset. And you can contrast that to somebody that has Alzheimer's disease, which generally will have the short-term memory deficits, forgetting what's happened in the morning, and things like that. So whether you have toxic protein-related damage or blood vessel damage in that area, you'll find people become very apathetic. And even then, there are more severe forms of of apathy as it progresses with uh, damage to that area of the brain called mutism where people won't respond to anything that you say to them and they stop talking. So it's a very important um, area of the brain. Now we don't know 100% in all kinds of dementia what causes it. 
the, the brain is a complex mm -hmm. organ. So uh, that part of the brain is connected to various other parts of the brain, including all other parts of the frontal lobes. And so you know, it could be generalized damage in that sense that causes apathy. But um, I think it's interesting to know that there are very specific parts of the brain which are tied to your motivation and being involved in the world around you. And, and um, you know, just to echo that, a lot of complexity and a lot of different uh, signs, symptoms, characteristics, functions that uh, are, you know, all in that front part of the brain, which is, is quite large and has connections to many other parts of the brain. And uh, we do see apathy often, though, in people who, for, for various reasons, have had some kind of damage to those front parts. Um, in terms of causes of depression, I'm not going to go into too much detail because I want us to get to some of the questions, but there's still not a very in-depth understanding mm -hmm. of the very specific causes of depression. Um, it, there are changes in uh, chemicals in the brain and, and these circuits. Uh, we, we talk about neurotransmitters, which are the chemical signals that travel from one nerve cell in the brain to another. Um, th this kind of simplified idea, um, when you multiply it by the millions of brain cells, it, well, our understanding is uh, still pretty primitive. But um, you know, we know that some of the treatments uh, that are effective do change the balance of these neurotransmitters or uh, nerve cell chemicals and uh, that's one approach to the treatment of depression. Um, with respect to treatments for apathy, uh, what have you got for us on, on that front? You know, it's a, it's a really challenging <clears throat> uh, symptom to treat. There aren't any great uh, medical treatments, so there's no pill that you can take. There's been multiple drugs that have been trialed, but none with any great success in dementia. Um, so you're also left with trying to change the environment or trying, mm -hmm. trying your best as a, as a caregiver to get somebody out. There's been some studies in nursing homes or long-term care facilities which show that by changing the environment and making the environment more engaging, you can sometimes help, but that's very limited evidence. Most of the evidence suggests that it's not a particularly modifiable uh, symptom to have. So a lot of times it's the caregiver who's experiencing significant amounts of distress about the person not getting out. And when they start understanding that it's not the person's choice, it's not mm -hmm. the person with dementia's choice to be that way, and that oftentimes, and you remove the possibility of them being depressed, then you can give them permission to actually sit there for periods of time without feeling the stress and need to get them up and moving. And that can be liberating for a lot of caregivers to understand that uh, it's not their choice. These are actual people that are having damaged parts of their brain which are resulting in them not wanting to get up and, and do things. So it's always reasonable to try your best, but at some point you, you have to kind of take care of yourself and um, limit the feelings of guilt associated with yeah. you know, the fact that they have an illness um, and that it's not their choice to get up and it's not your choice 
and oftentimes there's nothing you can do to make it better. I, I think that harkens back to one of the reasons why we've put together the iGerryCare.ca resource and uh, this lesson in particular on apathy and depression, uh, particularly with respect to apathy. Uh, knowledge may help with acceptance for the caregiver and uh, patience because I think sometimes that uh, it's that anxiety and that uh, frustration uh, that um, you know is is really challenging for caregivers so I think you're right and it, we talk about this particular symptom as as one of those big uh, moments in the clinic where when a caregiver does understand and accept it uh, light goes on and suddenly they feel that their burden is lessened yeah. uh, as they don't feel quite so responsible for every aspect of that person's uh, care of what they're doing every second of the day. I, I'm going to um, defer you know, talking about treatments for depression because I think it'll probably come up in some of the questions and I, I really want to have a chance to um, to thank the people who make this possible. So um, funding for these live events and the recording and archive, uh, archiving of them is provided uh, by CABI, the Canadian Centre for Aging and Brain Health Innovation, powered by Baycrest. Uh, we've had additional funding for the production of the e-learning and uh, from the Jarris Centre at Hamilton Health Sciences, uh, McMaster University, uh, the Hamilton Health Sciences Foundation, the Alzheimer's Society of Hamilton Halton, and uh, none of this would also be possible without our crew at the Division of E-Learning Innovation here at McMaster. So we're going to move now to talking uh, about any questions that you have and answering those questions. I just want to preface this uh, that this is a free educational service just like our iGerryCare.ca site. Um, we are hoping to provide uh, knowledge and education about various aspects of dementia and uh, for to help with the caregiver challenges and roles uh, but we're not giving direct medical advice so you may send in uh, specific questions and we can't really um, take the role of being your consultant physician so we'll try and answer questions as best we can with some uh, key educational points but uh, just be aware that this can't constitute medical advice and you should follow up with your healthcare team around specific issues. There is also a survey uh, that's pinned at the top of the Facebook comments. We're really looking for your input on topics to cover in future live events, uh, the format, does it work for you? Uh, as a response to the feedback, we prioritize certain topics and we've also increased the length of this live event. So at this point, I would love to uh, go to some of the viewer questions that are coming in. Before we move on to the rest of the Q&A portion of the show, I'd just like to take a few moments to tell everyone a little bit more about the iGerryCare.ca website. Here you can find a number of lessons which cover a range of topics, from the basics of understanding dementia, management options, brain health, and caregiver wellness, to name a few. In addition to these lessons, you'll also have access to our live event video recordings, as well as email-based learning options. We're constantly looking to raise awareness about iGerryCare, develop new educational materials, and maintain this as a free resource for caregivers. 
If you'd like to help, you can support our program by clicking on the donate button on the top right portion of our website. A hundred percent of your donation goes to iJerryCare. Now, with that out of the way, let's get back to the show. So here's here's an interesting question. Um, this person is involved in the support of people living with uh, intellectual disabilities, and uh, there's a person uh, that they support who has uh, Down syndrome, or trisomy 21, uh, which is a, a genetic disorder uh, that also predisposes somebody to uh, Alzheimer's disease. Uh, can you say a little bit about, uh, they're looking for what are there any specific things that might uh, might be helpful for them as they're supporting this person with Down syndrome and an early onset of dementia? Uh, definitely a, a challenging question. I think one thing is, um, you know, the definition of dementia required does, uh, as part of its requirement, does require that the person have a decline in their cognitive functioning, so their memory and thinking abilities from a previous baseline, uh, which helps to differentiate it from something where you have either a, a learning disability or an intellectual disability, such as in Down syndrome. So when people are experiencing dementia, uh, when they have Down syndrome, you'd expect a further decline from their baseline, noting that things have worsening and their degree of function would become further impaired uh, compared to their baseline intellectual disabilities from from their Down syndrome. Do you have anything you'd like to add? Or? Yeah, so in, in some of my clinical experience with um, working with patients with uh, intellectual disabilities, particularly Down syndrome, uh, in addition to the dementia, people with Down syndrome are often more prone to certain types of anxiety disorders and uh, obsessive compulsive disorder or OCD. So sometimes what one can see is when there are more cognitive impairments, you can see some worsening of some of the other uh, mental health challenges that, uh, that occur. So sometimes people will become a bit more anxious. They may repeat themselves more because their memory problems are worsening and that may also feed in somewhat to some of the OCD symptoms where they, uh, one, of, one of the symptoms that we sometimes see with uh, patients with Down syndrome but also patients with the damage to the frontal lobes is that repetition of particular mm -hmm. phrases or ideas, we call it um, uh, perseveration mm -hmm. and um, well we think of it it's a good characteristic to persevere if somebody is persevering too much and they are perseverating and repeating the same ideas it um, it uh, they can become very anxious uh, and overwhelmed by thinking about the, the concept and it's one of the things that I think that is a challenge for people supporting people with uh, with perseveration which we often see in in Down syndrome so I, I would say in addition to some of the strategies generally in terms of helping with uh, dementia and the environmental supports. Uh, look to make sure that anxiety symptoms are as well managed as they can be. Uh, be on the lookout for depression. And I would say um, also uh, just be mindful of the other medical complications that can occur in Down syndrome because there's a range of other uh, medical issues. So it's always mm -hmm. important to follow up and make sure that there aren't medical issues that are contributing to the cognitive issues or, or mm -hmm. depression. So. Great. so we have some other uh, questions coming in. Uh, 
can dementia be slowed down if there's, uh, the, the question was worded, if somebody's on the verge of it. So I guess there's, uh, I'm, I'm extrapolating a little bit from the question, but let's say there are some evidence of cognitive impairments, not fully dementia, but uh, can, it, can it be slowed down at all, I guess is the question. Yeah, I think that's, that's a great question. Um, the, the first step always is figuring out whether there's any reversible component to the cognitive impairment or memory and thinking problems that the person is experiencing because certainly, you know, um, if they had elevated levels of, let's say, calcium in their blood and you reverse that, then the cognitive impairment may improve or they're having some sort of thyroid problem where their thyroid hormone levels in their blood are either too high or too low. Those things could be reversed. And what you're looking at in that person and seeing with respect to their memory and thinking is related to thyroid hormone levels, then you can fix that problem and yes, it can be slowed or reversed completely. If somebody has a, a toxic protein in their brain that's causing problems, the best that you can hope to do is mask or delay symptoms. Oftentimes when we see people in clinic though, we don't know for sure 100% whether a toxic protein is causing it. So if we go through and we find that there's nothing reversible that we can see, then we do counsel people on various brain health activities, which can be seen in our IGRI care lessons, you know, how to keep your brain healthy and those things that we counsel, counsel people on that seem to have some impact on slowing cognitive decline are, you know, eating healthy. So for example, uh, partaking in a Mediterranean diet or something similar to that maintaining your cognitive activity, so staying engaged with the world around you and partaking in, um, you know, whether it's crossword puzzles or Sudoku or reading books or things like that. Um, uh, exercising, so, you know, staying very, yeah. very active. Um, and you know, taking care of your general health, so trying to keep your blood pressure well controlled uh, if it's abnormal. Uh, trying to keep your blood cholesterol levels controlled and if you have conditions like you know diabetes making sure your blood sugar is controlled to make sure that the blood vessels that lead to your brain and keep it healthy uh, are as healthy as they can be so it's more of a global approach um, and yeah, great answer. Yeah. Make sure that it, this is actually dementia. Get the diagnosis right. Make sure that there's nothing uh, specific that can be treated, uh, a, a particular medical disorder or depression, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, then some of the healthy lifestyle things. Really, our first three lessons on iGerry Care kind of address Absolutely. a variety of those things. So another um, very interesting, complex question. Uh, what's the best way to address, this is a, uh, a caregiver whose parent has uh, been diagnosed with both Alzheimer's and Lewy body dementia and has <clears throat> what's described here is becomes obsessed with one particular thing. So for example with food, there's either too much food or too little food. And I would say this, this overlaps a little bit with what I was talking about in terms of either mm -hmm. perseveration where somebody may get a particular, uh, almost like an obsession or a compulsion. They get an idea in their head and then uh, they may dwell on it and ruminate on it and it can be uh, a real challenge or a frustration for the caregiver. Any, any yeah. thoughts about this, this scenario? Yeah, it's always challenging in that moment where they are focused on one thing. And so a common technique that we, we like to instruct people to use is that of 
distraction. Um, it can be hard if they are obsessed, but instead of telling them not to be obsessed with the food or talking to them about the food itself, which is what they're obsessed with at that time, try and distract them to be interested in something else. So, you know, would you like a cup of tea or if they're interested in football or some sort of programming on the television, say, oh, your, your favorite show is on or, you know, talk about what's happening outside right at this moment. And sometimes you can distract them away from being obsessed around that particular topic. It's still a challenge. It doesn't work 100% of the time. And none of these strategies are foolproof. Um, so, you know, you'll have to try a few things. Yeah, I was going to say sometimes it's yeah. a question of trial and error and, and having a, a consistent approach amongst different caregivers, whether it's a spouse or a family member. I feel like uh, non-pharmacological or like non-drug treatments using some of these behavioral mm -hmm. uh, tricks of the trade. Yeah. Uh, if somebody in the family does come up with, a whether it's a particular food or uh, a script that mm -hmm. seems to work, it's like, hey, I tried this with mom and for whatever reason it worked and then everybody can kind of be on the same page to use that strategy. There, you know, in the setting of, um, you know, severe, say, obsessive compulsive disorder, mm -hmm. uh, severe anxiety, there are you know, other medication strategies mm -hmm. with what are sometimes called anti-obsessionals. They're typically uh, antidepressant medications that are also used for the treatment, but it may not be as effective in the setting where it's more of what we talked about with the, the damage to the front parts mm -hmm. of the brain that are leading to some of the, the, re the repetition or perseveration. So I feel like uh, pharmacologic or drug treatments are going to be less helpful in this scenario and, and may run into more side effects. So I would agree with you about trying to, you know, keep trying, try not to get too frustrated as the caregiver and, and keep trying different behavioral strategies like distraction if those can be uh, helpful. And I think, you know, we mentioned uh, being in contact with the Alzheimer's Society through First Link. Um, getting access to occupational therapists as yeah. well, they can provide you with uh, certain games that you might be able to play, um, sorting puzzle pieces or setting, sorting colored pieces of paper, depending on the degree of cognitive impairment, so that instead of being distracted, or sorry, instead of being obsessed with food, they may get obsessed with something else which is less intrusive to mm. their day-to-day -day activities. And so, uh, I'm kind of a global expert and you're a global expert in diagnosis, treatment and management. Sometimes for the non-drug related treatments, the occupational therapists can be the best people. Like that's their, uh, their profession is understanding how people can function best in their home. So uh, we will get involved with occupational therapists quite frequently. If you are fortunate enough to live in a, live in a region where you have access to some of those really skilled uh, allied health workers, then occasionally they will have occupational therapists or behavioral therapists that can help provide advice uh, around strategies. Um, so worth checking in with your healthcare team to find out if those resources are available in your community. So we have another uh, question that uh, this is, how can we comfort or help a parent 
who is not only depressed but is also very anxious. Uh, they seem afraid to step into the shower, distrustful of relatives coming into the house when they, uh, the relatives want to help out. So mm -hmm. any suggestions around uh, some of these uh, anxiety symptoms in, in addition to depression uh, that seem to be interfering with day-to-day -day function and independence mm -hmm. and, and even uh, interfering with allowing other caregivers to come in to help. Yes. I think when symptoms become that severe, where they're truly impairing somebody's ability to even get in the shower, we consider pharmacologic or drug-related treatments at that point in time. Um, oftentimes when people are anxious and have memory and thinking difficulties, it's really hard to know where one stops and one ends. Mm -hmm. The anxiety uh, will make the cognitive impairment worse. If they had cognitive impairment, that will make the anxiety worse. So frequently we'll have um, a set of steps that we go to with respect to, to treatments and one of those would be a, a cholinesterase inhibitor to try and help with their memory and thinking problems. But as a side effect, it can also improve uh, to a minor degree um, their depressive or anxiety symptoms. And I think from this point here, uh, or this person's experience, it's also very important to note that often these symptoms occur altogether. Mm -hmm. And that can be a challenge for us as well. Somebody can have a bit of apathy and be anxious and be depressed. Um, so we just have to kind of start building on a foundation and I, I'd usually start with the cholinesterase inhibitor uh, Aricept is the commonly used cholinesterase inhibitor and start building up on a foundation from there to make sure that the cognitive side of things is, is treated and if they're able to tolerate that and the uh, anxiety and depression is still severe we might consider uh, an antidepressant at that point in time to help things out and certainly getting our psychiatry colleagues involved. I would, I would say you know um, very important to listen to the patient and understand in as much detail as possible yeah. if they're able to express themselves. Uh, each of those particular contexts, because they could be different, so the, the anxiety about stepping into the shower may also relate to mobility issues, mm -hmm. and so it may be um, a real-world issue in terms of unsteadiness, and there may in fact be some physical strategies, whether it's grab bars or switching from showering to uh, say more of a sponge bath or something like that. So just clarifying and trying to understand as best you can, listen to the patient, uh, the distrust of relatives, you know, are, is it related to not thinking they're relatives, is, is there what we might call a delusion and some of those can, can sound quite um, unusual, like I, I don't think they're my relatives, I think somebody's you know, replaced them and looks like them. So understanding whether there are uh, delusions, it's, it's often the case that anxiety symptoms uh, can be a manifestation of depression. So ensuring that the depression is well treated may in fact help with the anxiety and, and some of the other symptoms. So there's no one easy approach. Listen carefully, see if you can understand and address some of the symptoms and, uh, and then if it looks, you know, try to treat as many of the things with non-medication strategies as much as possible in, in cases where those, everything's been tried and those non-medication strategies are not working well enough and the person is still really distressed, then 
talk with your doctor or, or a specialist if you have access to a geriatrician or a psychiatrist about whether there is a role for medication management of some of those symptoms. Um, Definitely. And I think we deal with that in le our lessons on um, managing mm -hmm. behaviors. Is It's very important to be specific about what uh, symptoms you're addressing at, at what times and coming up with a log and seeing what the antecedent or pr prior uh, behaviors are before they actually are experiencing the anxiety. So those are all great points. So uh, we have another uh, question. Uh, could anxiety be the initial presentation uh, or primary presentation of dementia and, and how common is that? Yeah. I think it's a great question. Um, anxiety is a presenting complaint of dementia in isolation would be very rare. Um, people that have anxiety may experience some minor cognitive impairment, um, difficulties with thought blocking or, or not being able to process things quite as quickly. But if you're seeing anxiety related to damage to the brain, then you would expect to see concomitant um, cognitive impairment at the same time. So um, it's not something that we commonly see. However, depression, I'd say, would be a much more common presenting complaint that can also be associated with memory and thinking difficulties. And I think as we've addressed in uh, our lessons as well, sometimes it's difficult to tell, is this depression, is this dementia related to depression or not? And oftentimes we're left treating the depression to see if the uh, memory and thinking problems improve. And if they improve, then uh, we feel more likely that it was related to the depression itself. Yeah, I would say, so very unusual that anxiety, in the absence of other symptoms like mm -hmm. memory problems or language problems, would be the, the, the presenting uh, symptom of, of dementia. Uh, I would agree with you. It's, it's not that uncommon that we will see somebody have a depression at the outset and in, in and what we often see is it's somebody who is having some cognitive impairments and they have awareness that mm. they are having problems with memory or language and uh, and that may lead to a depression but it's sort of the the earliest symptoms and and much less common uh, much less common that we would see anxiety alone um, here's another question would would treatment of anxiety or depression with antidepressants, for example, uh, they, they name SSRIs, which are a particular class of antidepressants that are often used to treat depression and anxiety. Would they be effective in people with dementia in terms of reducing or su suppressing symptoms? And I guess they're, they're commenting that they, they are saying, why don't we see any improvement? So I'm, I'm thinking that uh, their family member or the person that they're a care partner for has been started on antidepressants for depression, anxiety, but they may not be seeing uh, improvements. Yeah, and we were talking about this uh, just earlier today in terms of the, the scientific evidence for this. And it doesn't appear that the scientific evidence uh, shows a large benefit for treating people with dementia and improving their depression symptoms. Uh, although it's not completely clear, uh, I've certainly treated people with SSRIs that have dementia and depression and they've improved. Mm -hmm. So um, it's usually used as a last resort. 
we talked about using the non-pharmacologic strategies to try and improve somebody's sense of well-being and then um, just being realistic with the caregivers and with the patients on, on what the benefits of treatment might be as well as being very clear with uh, the side effects or potential side effects that somebody may experience. So um, it doesn't work for everybody and I think something to remember too is that um, we're just changing the levels of the chemicals in the brain and if the actual cells in the brain are dying sometimes there's not much to be done because those chemicals act on the cells that are already dead so for some people it can be very effective uh, for other people you may not get any benefit and may just get side effects always try uh, non-medical approaches first and then if all of those things have failed or generally if the symptoms are so severe um, that they're really causing an impairment in quality of life, then we can try some medical therapy. The, the one um, treatment that uh, we did not discuss in the lesson mm -hmm. uh, is for people with severe depression who are not responding to non-drug treatment strategies, who are not responding to even um, medication strategies like SSRIs. Uh, one of the other effective treatments that can be life-saving uh, life in the setting of very severe depression uh, is uh, what we call electroconvulsive therapy or mm -hmm. ECT. So again, you know, there would be uh, other first-line or treatments that you would try first, but for somebody whose depression is life-threatening, they're not eating, they're not mm -hmm. drinking, uh, they're, you know, essentially um, not able to survive without treatment. Um, ECT can be a very effective treatment for uh, severe depression, even in the setting of dementia. Uh, but it, it does look like there's not great science. Antidepressant medicines, um, you know, may be more effective than placebo or sugar pill, mm -hmm. but they're probably not as effective in dementia uh, that, than they are mm -hmm. in, in people who do not have dementia. Mm -hmm. So uh, here's, a, here's a question that I think um, is more of something that we can clarify educationally. So the question was phrased, can dementia lead to Alzheimer's? And I think this is a good opportunity to express some of the things that we cover in lesson mm -hmm. one around um, the different types of dementia. Do you mm -hmm. want to speak a little yeah, bit to, to clarifying this? So dementia itself is an umbrella term. And what that means is that somebody has a progressive disorder or illness where they're experiencing memory and thinking problems, sometimes visual and spatial problems, sometimes language problems, and they get worse over time. So for instance, somebody can't remember what they did yesterday, or they can't remember what they did in the morning, they're losing their keys, they're repeating conversations, they're repeating stories. And so that impacts their ability to function independently day to day. And when that happens, and it's not related to any reversible cause, and it's not related to depression, then we say that that's a dementia. I don't know if you want to pull up the, um, the board here as well. Uh, the, the dementia disorders that we're talking about that are chronic and progressive usually happen as a result of one of two things. One are these toxic proteins here. And the toxic proteins, we're not sure why they come, up, come about. A lot of times the proteins themselves occur normally in the brain, 
but they start getting misfolded and misshapen. And when that happens, they can actually cause damage to all of the nerve cells in the brain, and that causes the brain to stop functioning. Slightly differently is when you have damaged blood vessels in the brain that deliver oxygen that allow the cells in the brain to function. If you have damage from either a stroke or slow degeneration or problems with those blood vessels, you also impair the brain's ability to function. So uh, dementia cannot lead to Alzheimer's, but Alzheimer's can cause a dementia. And, and it would be the most common type of dementia. So I think that's why sometimes people use the terms uh, interchangeably. They talk yeah. about Alzheimer's or dementia, but in truth there are several other causes of dementia, though Alzheimer's is um, thought to be the most common. And sometimes uh, you can have more than one type. Uh, so we, we would often see uh, patients who may have a mix of both Alzheimer's and um, and vascular dementia, for example. I think it's a great uh, uh, question to be addressed in lesson three, the different types of dementia. Mm. So, um, you know, ha yeah, have a look at that as yeah. well. Um, one final question, because we're, we're sort of at the, almost at the 45 minute mark. Does treatment with cholinesterase inhibitors, those are those mm -hmm. cognitive enhancer uh, medications that you referred to earlier, does treatment with cholinesterase inhibitors for people with early onset dementia mean that you might increase the duration of their suffering mm -hmm. from anxiety or mood symptoms? Yeah, these are great questions. Um, cholinesterase inhibitors, again, uh, just boost the levels of a chemical in the brain called acetylcholine. And the reason we think they help people with dementia is that uh, in particular in Alzheimer's disease, people have low levels of this chemical called acetylcholine. So if they have lower levels than normal and we boost them up to within normal levels, then we can improve a few things. And one of those things is some thinking capacity. Sometimes people will experience less depression and anxiety. If we observe them and see how they function day to day, maybe they can function a little bit better um, so they kind of help in a general sense. The problem though with the dementia, as we just saw, are that, is that the proteins that are toxic and damaging the blood vessels are not treated by cholinesterase inhibitors. So cholinesterase inhibitors are helpful to, to alleviate somebody's symptoms or improve their thinking capacity to a mild degree, but they don't impact the course of the illness and they don't prolong somebody's life. So uh, because they won't prolong somebody's life, they certainly will not make suffering longer or worse. And in fact, because they can treat to a mild degree uh, some people's depression or anxiety in the context of dementia might actually improve their uh, symptoms and decrease their suffering. So uh, thanks, that's, uh, that's really all the time we have for today to stay in uh, t with respect to our, our 45 minute allotment. Uh, any questions that we didn't get a chance to address, we'll try to answer some of them on our Facebook page. Uh, please take a moment to fill out the brief survey that's linked in the comment section that will help to inform our future events. And just a reminder that our next live event 
will be November 7th at 1 p.m. Uh, we did get feedback that suggested this was a pretty good time. Uh, we did the first one in 30 minutes, this one 45, so uh, give us your thoughts in the survey about that. Also like to take a moment to thank our sponsors again, especially uh, CABI, the Centre for Aging Brain Health Innovation at Baycrest, uh, McMaster University, Hamilton Health Sciences Foundation and the Jarris Centre. And uh, we will see you on the internet. You can access uh, iGerryCare.ca slash events. Uh, we'll be putting up a recording or an archive of this video on our Facebook page, on YouTube and on our events page on iGerryCare. And we'll see you live in a couple of weeks on November 7th. Thank you very much for joining us today. Thanks for tuning in. If you enjoyed the episode, you can subscribe to our website so you don't miss a thing. And if you didn't enjoy the episode, let us know how we can improve. Thanks, and we'll see you next time.